1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to a Labor Day edition of Dirt Talk. It's Labor Day, but I accidentally scheduled the podcast with poor, poor Matt. We have Matt Moldenhauer of Bellwether Logging. He's the president over there, and he's been there for a few years now. It's a fascinating story since he is not at all a logger by trade, and we're going to get into all that. We've been working with them for a little bit now. Awesome company. One of the very first companies I worked with when I first started BuildWit. He was one of the first people to hand me a check for photos, which was incredible. And uh, we really appreciate you giving us some time, Matt.
2: Hey, it's fun to do this. And like you said, I feel like uh, I've known you for about as long as I was doing it since I got introduced to you pretty early. So it's yeah. exciting to watch us work in uh, tandem over the last few years.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we, we were introduced by to each other by Keaton Turner of Turner mining group when I was still in Houston. And then I quit my job and I was looking for any opportunity to make any kind of money whatsoever. So I think I reached out to you and said, Hey, you know, I can come out and take photos of, of your company if you want. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you had me up, you picked me up from the airport so I didn't have to pay for a rental car. I stayed at your apartment so I didn't have to pay for a hotel and it was real, uh, real dirtbag <laughs> in it. <laughs>
2: Good times, though, man. Build character.
1: It certainly does. Yeah, you've been there too. (laughs) All right. So, I want to get into your background first because it's super far from logging. It's I I would, I would say it's almost the opposite of logging. It's consulting for you know real big fancy companies. So, how did you get into consulting in your previous life?
2: Yeah, I am. Well, I I guess a lot of the story. Even to get to Bellwether starts with me going to business school at Indiana University and the Kelley School of Business. And so when you're a business school student, there's a few paths that are typical to go to, and one of them is consulting. And so I actually didn't go to business school to become a consultant. I, a company I worked at before I was at school, I hated consultants, just thought, what a waste of money. Um just went to the and could tell you anything you didn't already know. And so I was very anti-consulting, but when I got to business school, I decided after looking at a lot of their things that it would be a really good career move for me, having not experienced as many different industries as some of my classmates had. And so I was really fortunate to get a job at a good firm, uh, Bain and company in Chicago and spend three years there. And And during that time, you kind of get what they call like a business toolkit, you Just you know, it's an extension almost of an education because you, you get to work on really neat problems, but highly like analytical work, and, and like you said, far as far from the forest as you could be. because I was on the 34th floor uh, in, in downtown Chicago in a skyscraper, and then on an airplane every Monday and Thursday, traveling to clients. And so, uh, spending my entire weeks in conference rooms with small teams. So, it was just a, a really kind of good learning experience for me, but I ultimately knew when I went into it that uh, I wanted to go do something else afterwards that was in more of an operating role where I got to be a leader and take on some responsibility and take some risk. And so uh, that was a short-term thing for me from the
1: outset. Yeah. What, I mean, you, you, you alluded to it a little bit, but what's, what's the life as a consultant to like? Cause it's, it's very luxurious, but it's also pretty brutal. Like it's not a very sustainable lifestyle. How, how is it actually being a, like, you know, a high level consultant? Cause Bain, I mean, is one of the, it's one of the best consulting businesses out there. So what's, what's the life actually like?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people could probably speak to this, but when you're on in these firms, they charge a lot of money, and there's a, you get a small team of people. The typical team I worked on was probably five people, and we'd go into a Fortune 500 company and work with their CEO, COO, CFO, whoever the project was mapped to, for three to six months, maybe up to 12 at most. And during that time, they're paying you a lot of money, and so the expectations are really high in terms of what you're gonna deliver, And the whole reason that they typically hire you, or we used to say that you're either hired to be brains, bodies, or shields. So they either feel like, uh, and oftentimes people always say, oh, it's because they need really smart people. But that's just one of the three reasons. Sometimes they, they want people that think differently than they think. But oftentimes it's bodies. They just don't have enough time in their leader's schedule, so they need extra people to come work on something. And then sometimes your shield, which is they're trying to make a tough decision and they want a fall guy. <laughs> and so we go over there and have to have tough conversations to take the blame, which is by design. But you think by the nature of being short-term work and really kind of high-value work, yeah, it's like um, typical 70-hour weeks, I would say. Definitely put in 100-hour weeks at times. In my last project, I think I went you know, a stretch of like 60 days where I only truly took maybe one day off. And so sometimes it can be a real, real toss. And like I said, you're on the airplane a lot, and uh, yeah, you just basically work and eat meals, and then sleep a little bit. So, yeah, it's definitely a grind, and that's why for some people it ends up being a, um, an up or out type experience, and you're just there for two, three, four years, and then you move on to something more sustainable. But, you know, other people do stay for quite a long time and
1: and uh, figure it out. So well, yeah. I don't, I don't know if uh, logging and bellwether is more sustainable, but. It's different.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's different. You know, the thing, too, is like in consulting, there's two major activities that you actually think about it. And it's one sitting on a computer doing analysis, whether you uh, are writing emails, putting PowerPoint decks together, doing Excel analyses or whatnot. And then the other activity is having meetings. And yeah. you're either having meetings to learn something or having meetings to tell someone something. And, you know, that's just it's, it's just a lot of either uh, having to do very intense thinking or very intense listening. And so, yeah, it's a pretty intense experience. It's not like 70 hours where you, uh, you've got your feet kicked up on a desk or anything like that.
1: So until up until the point which you transitioned to Bellwether, and we'll get to how that opportunity even came about, but had you really had any exposure to Blue Collar America?
2: Yeah. Um, actually, I'd say... One of my most formative business experiences was before I went back to business school. I worked at a company in Wisconsin called Quad Graphics, and it's a printing company. So, manufacturing plants all across the country and a few in international countries, and um, printing magazines and catalogs and direct mail inserts. So, actually, you know, I was there from 2007 to 2011, and half that time was a really depressing time in the printing space, but half that time was actually. Uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight was actually not a terrible time until the, the real recession started to hit. But in that workspace, right, we had twenty thousand employees when I left, and the vast majority of them are people that are working in a printing factory on a printing press or mm-hmm. in the bindery, which is where they, you know, staple or glue the magazines and catalogs together. And so very blue collar work. And I think why it was so formative for me was, you know very the culture was everybody in the whole company wore a blue uniform. so even if you were the C- the ceo blue pants and a blue shirt with quad graphics logo on it and your name embroidered on the shirt everybody had them and we wore them every day really um and the whole the whole atmosphere of it was none of us are different we're all we all take it all takes all of us to do this and i, I really kind of stuck with me through my whole career because you know we'd sit in the in the i, I worked in the uh headquarters plant for most of my time there and Uh, We'd sit in the cafeteria and you'd have the the guy who was first day on a printing press sitting two tables down from the CEO or the COO eating in the same cafeteria and and wearing the same basic clothes. And so I just felt like that was a really good way to just let everybody know that we were all in it together. And I've kind of taken that with me um, wherever I've gone.
1: You know, you don't see that very much in Fortune 500 America, though. It's not, there's really not that sense of humility. I, I saw that. When I went to China a few years back and went to a few heavy equipment factories, it was like that there. We were meeting with like top brass, the company, you know, each division had its own CEO, quote unquote, and they'd wear the exact same uniform as the factory workers. So you couldn't, unless they told, they told us that this guy was, you know, the guy, but if they didn't say that you would have never known because they do, they, they eat at the exact same place too. They, they it, everything's the same there. No one's any more different or any more important than anyone else, which I really, really appreciated about that culture. But then the American culture in blue collar life, it, it's like that. But in like white collar world, it's definitely not like that. There's a very much a class system. I feel like with most companies.
2: A hundred percent. And I haven't gotten the chance to work in consulting. I worked with some big heavy equipment companies. I worked with manufacturers and healthcare companies and, and all over the board. And you just come to realize that all these industries and all these companies have their own unique cultures and they really color the way they do their work and the way people feel about working there. And I would completely agree is that the majority of the places that I got to experience, it was, there, there are hierarchies in one way or another, whether it's the size of the office, where you work in the building, where you get to park what you wear, what you drive, or, or even just like where you sit in a meeting. There's just all these built-in systems. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of a disservice sometimes to overall creativity because I've been in plenty of meetings where that culture exists and the only people that are talking in the meeting are the, the high-ups and everyone mm-hmm. else is listening. And, and then the higher-ups complain after the meeting, why didn't anybody share anything? Yeah. And, uh, you want <laughs> to Like, well, the culture you build is that they're scared to death and they don't think their ideas really matter. Yeah. And so... Uh, at Quad, that was one of the best parts was I, I, I stood in our uh, lean meetings a lot. We were big into lean manufacturing at that time and that you know the, the meetings were in rooms that had every wall was a whiteboard, and there were no chairs, no tables. Everyone stood the entire meeting and it was a mix of people from uh, management to production employees. And I just remember the feeling of those meetings. It was you really didn't even understand who was who from a title perspective, it was just like, who's got good ideas and what are we mm. going to do? Mm. And so I think that can be really powerful for creativity. Anyway, <laughs> a lot of what I learned there about kind of like working across with different levels of people because levels always do exist, but I think it's good to, to flatten things out in terms of how people think and uh, interact with each other.
1: Yeah. No. Okay. So you're at, you're at Bain. You, you're there a few years traveling around the country. Uh, where does bellwether enter the picture? Cause that is like, that is 180 degrees. Hey, here's this logging company. We'd love for you to lead. How does that even come to be?
2: Well, so I was in consulting and for the most part knew that there was going to be a pretty high likelihood I would be leaving after three years. And while I was, had been a business school at IU, I had met who are my now cur- current business partners uh, that we were all there at the same time and they run a family office third generation and they've been investing in small service companies for a very long time and so when we would get together over the course of the years I was in consulting they would always float little ideas to me about companies and and so I you know would think on and think about what do I really want to do this and I think it occurred to me it just really fired me up to think about leading a small business you know it's I kind of said to a lot of people early on it felt like Business schools, a lot of people say, is is an education where it's more of a social education than it is like an intellectual one. And I don't always disagree with that. And I I kind of said to myself, well, if I actually learn anything, why don't I go prove it? And so getting into these small businesses, I think, is the absolutely best way to say to Prove to me that you're actually good at what you spent two years learning about. And then also you get the chance. For me, it was a chance to be a leader, a chance to get out of my comfort zone, which this business definitely gave me. And I, I, I tell everybody, um, I was so interested in it that I, I could have sat and analyzed what kind of company do I want to be in for a long time? But I really just wanted to say, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to get into small business. I'll stay on this corporate path forever. And, and so it was kind of an hour and ever. So I didn't even think twice about the company. I, I really just wanted to dive in and, and figure it out. So they, they brought it to me after they had purchased it and said, do you want to run it? And, and I said, yes. And that whole process took place in less than a month.
1: And, and what was your prior knowledge of logging before this? Nothing relevant. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> i i've got I've got my thirty second elevator,
2: baiter pitch that I've told people from my first year on the job, so that they wouldn't be scared to death that I was running things. Yeah. But the truth is, like, that didn't matter. You know, not a forester, uh, did not understand southeast timber, um, and the industry is, is so say hyper local that you know, quite frankly, if, if you hadn't been around it, you know, you wouldn't really have that relevant of knowledge to run.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess that's a good lesson though. It's not oh, a lot of people overanalyze and, and want to plan and make everything perfect before they actually go do something and take a risk. But a lot of times you don't need the background or experience if you're willing to just jump in and get your hands dirty and make it happen.
2: I think one of the best, things you learn in consulting because you go into these other companies and they're all experts having worked there for however many years and you don't know anything and you have 3 to 12 months to solve a problem is the process of how to, you know, we said how to get smart on something. So Mm. you walk in and you're not smart. You don't know anything, but your goal is to become smart as fast as you can. Mm. And I think that also when you go through that process a few times, you get more confidence to just not be scared of the fact that I don't know anything about logging. I don't know anything about forestry and timber, uh, and start to say, "All right, what do I go? What do I need to go learn now?" And then after you know month after month, you can continually learn more and more and more. But eventually, you're right up there with everybody else in terms of your knowledge. So it's just a. I think it gave, gave me the confidence to, to really go through that process of being the you know the least educated person in the company I was running for a yeah. while.
1: <laughs> no. So what was the state? of the company? Like your first week you walk in, what, what does the company look like?
2: Uh, my first week we had two crews and 14 employees, but the company was really great. I mean, we those two, two crews are still largely intact. Have a bunch of those people still work with us, our longest tenure people, and they are some of our most productive crews. We've changed a lot since then because now we have 50 employees and five crews that we run entirely employed and then we have another four that we subcontract with. And so we're, you know, roughly five times the size in terms of total wood that we move. So things have changed a lot, but that original company is like still a huge part of how I've designed the culture around the production side of things. And so I think when you you come in, it was kind of nice to be smaller at that point because there's less going on and the former owner still knew how to do it all. And so I could just more or less sit and watch for a while, which I think is a really important thing when you don't know, is, you know, kind of the, the Greek ethos of, you know, do no harm, first do no harm. It's like my first few months was just, let's just sit and watch. You know, that being said, we did some pretty big things faster than I would in hindsight uh, in terms of bringing some new crews on and growing the business. And so that got me involved really fast at, after I'd kind of got through the initial few months of learning. And, and then we took off from there and I haven't kind of looked back.
1: Why why did they buy the business? What I mean what was the opportunity there? How did they even how did they even come to acquire a blogging business in South Carolina? Cuz it's not like you, it's not like other industries where businesses just go up for sale, you know, and it's it's very public process and somewhat easy to acquire. I mean, these are just everything's a, just a small family local business in the logging industry. There really aren't any yep. big behemoths in South Carolina In in the Pacific Northwest. It's a whole different story of like Warehouser and these massive multinational companies, but South Carolina, there's yep. nothing like that. So how'd they even, how they even find this opportunity to take advantage of?
2: Yeah. I still think that amongst, and now I know, you know, tens. Of, I mean, I know many, many logging businesses and owners throughout the state of, over the last, or plus years of doing this, but um, I still think of all the folks I met, the person who ran this company and sold it to me and my partners was one of the most unique uh, of all of them. He is similar in terms of like, uh, how did you wind up in this business? He went to North Carolina for his undergraduate degree in business. uh, He did go to NC State to get a forestry economics degree. And so he kind of got into the world But and and was uh, from South Carolina originally, but he... He also just like thought about things differently than some of the competitions that we go with today who are running their own loader and are, you know, multi generation families who are incredibly skilled in the woods, but the professional business side and even thinking about something like return on investment is not exactly how they would view or talk about their business. Yeah. And so I think part of the reason that we did come across this business was because the owner was unique and he was doing something uniquely well. And he had put his business up to sale through a broker that we had a relationship with. And so that's how we we found it. And because he was, you know, he, he just had a very well thought out process of what he did. And so when we got into looking at it, it was just interesting to us that you could continue to build on the principles he had put in place that were very different than most other people. And you know if you talk to a lot of people that are out there trying to buy small businesses they'll tell you they love fragmented industries where there's tons of players because there are opportunities for growth by being just slightly better than the average. Yeah. Um you know <laughs> we could get into all the challenges of of why that's you know not a perfect you know thing all the time but you know at the end of the day it was he had a great thing and and uh, not everything about his is perfect but but it was definitely different and we like that.
1: Well, why why is the market so fragmented? Because I think that's one of the most fascinating things about and, and and there's a lot of similarities there between excavating contractors too, and and there's just a lot of owner operator excavating contractors out there that have a few machines that do their job extraordinarily well, but have no sense of how to operate a business and and a lot I mean we've talked to, we've talked about this too a lot of these companies these are just small family companies one crew a lot of them are. Uh, essentially underwater too financially speaking like a lot of them have just there's just no equity of the business or anything like that that they just keep logging just because they have to as a means of survival why is it so broken up
2: yeah i mean it's there's there's a lot of factors that go into it but at the end of the day i think there are a few that are most important one is south carolina and the southeast in general has an incredibly high level of private land ownership so a big part of the reason that in other countries or like you said in the pacific northwest there are bigger companies is because there are bigger landowners big swaths of land owned by industrial companies who are trying to create partnerships where they can get a large scale of work done there are landowners like that in the southeast but there's a much higher percentage of uh, land owned by private landowners that have smaller Acreage, and because of that, there's a whole boutique, <laughs> uh, you know, bunch of folks that work with them and can facilitate those transactions at a, at a small level. But, you know, rather than someone in, in an industrial sense who's trying to hit quarterly and annual budget targets on harvests and things like that, a uh, private landowner is concerned with maximizing the return on investment of the trees they planted and each and every tree they planted, right, uh, in a very specific way. Yeah. That's not doesn't give you a huge advantage if you're if you're larger, you know, and then I'd say historically, there's even been studies done by, by groups that say, Oh, there's, there's actually no benefits to being a bigger company in logging because these crews work in rural areas, sometimes separated from one another. And if you have one of them, if you have two of them, instead of having one of them, like what's more efficient, right? If you get up to a certain level? Yeah, sure. You can purchase fuel in bulk. You can do things like that. But in reality, it, there's no real, you know, economies of scale as they get bigger so so why why do you need to be bigger i think part of what's changing now is that uh, one of the biggest problems with the industry is trucking and so trucking is a scale business the more trucks that you have the more they overlap with each other the more opportunities there are to lower your costs and do backhauls and all these things and um and so trucking is sort of i think forcing people to realize that actually if, if logging if trucking is a necessary part of logging which it is then you need to scale a little bit, get a little bigger so that you can do it effectively. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a long story. I mean, that, these family businesses have been around for a very long time in this, you know, private marketplace and it's just a fragmented industry, not just in logging, but across all of the subsets. Of supply chain.
1: It's fascinating. It, it has to be one of the most interesting markets I've ever seen before. It's so interesting. And I think what people forget too, and especially in the United States so yeah, Pacific Northwest, you have these enormous landowners and, and some of the biggest private landowners in the country are these, these, these logging businesses up in the Pacific Northwest. I know that for a fact, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in a lot of other countries too, the resources are not are, are, are nationalized. It's so it's, it's the yep. government selling the lumber. It's the government selling the ore. It's the government selling the, the oil. So it'll be private companies going in to get the government's materials and they get paid to do that. So it's the government that owns it all. Whereas in the United States, that's not the case. It's all private for the resources, which is a really unique aspect of our country, which is why, like, for example, we were able to become the biggest producer of energy in the world almost overnight, you know, within a five, 10 year period, because it's all private. You can, these private companies go in private landowners and go extract minerals in a private sense. Whereas in the other in other parts of the world, most parts of the world, it's not like that at all. It's all through the government.
2: Yeah, and you know, down here, it's such a minority of land is government owned. You know, we do have U.S. Forest Service properties in some places, and we've done work on uh, Air Force bases and Army bases. But in general, I mean, it's at least I think the number is eight, around eighty percent of the land is privately held. And so. You know, it's it's a complete flip flop from from that, and I've and I've worked with some companies, technology companies that are big in New Zealand and and places like that that harvest a bunch of timber, and yeah, they've described it to me. It's just the way the business operates because of that government control is completely different. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, what um, to the culture? What what was the was there culture shock there coming into like just absolute backcountry South Carolina from? Downtown Chicago,
2: a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's and and to a certain extent, I I, I kind of anticipated some of it. I don't think you can ever know how it feels to be, you know, coming into someone else, a, a new culture. Um, but I knew that I was going to be getting into some level of that. I think that what what it's been incredibly eye opening for me, and probably one of the most rewarding parts of it is just it's not just a move from <laughs> the north to the south, as you'd say, or or whatnot. It's the this business is run in the most rural parts of the state of South Carolina and logging in general is the most rural parts of the South. Yeah. Um, where are trees? Where people aren't. Yep. Uh, yeah. And so, and, you know, again, nobody likes to commute for hours and hours. So a lot of the time the people that do this work live in the middle of nowhere because they want to be close to where they're going to go work. Uh-huh. And, and oftentimes because they grew up in these areas, that's what they become exposed to is logging because it's one of the few things that thrives where there aren't people. And so, yeah, I mean, that part of it's definitely different for me. It took me, you know, I think that there's just the people part of it and learning about the norms and the culture. And then there's also the business part of it because it's got its own customs and like way of doing things. And, And quite frankly, because it's a little bit more of a hidden type industry, you know, some of, the businesses we compete with, uh, like I know in a lot of areas of the contracting world, but they don't do everything in the perfect way. You know, some don't pay their taxes correctly, don't care kinds of insurance, whatever, and we kind of have to compete with all that and and compete to to keep our talent. Even though we're in these rural areas, there's actually still, until recently, has been a very competitive talent market too. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a it was definitely a culture shock going from uh, from big business, big city to Small business, rural southern uh, industry.
1: Were there were there times like the first year uh, where where you were just wondering like what what the hell have I done? Uh, did you did you were you doubting it or you know wondering like maybe maybe I got in over my head with this one? What what were kind of your emotions over that first year?
2: You know, the first year probably less so because the former owner still involved with me during oh, that first year, yeah. and. Honestly, he's a real smart guy, and I still say we stay in touch. And we, I just felt we together. And I think this speaks to I think in any role, it's very important to have a partner of some type, right? Who is a right hand man for you. And while he was probably leading things, still a good portion of that year, while I learned, definitely like considered him my right hand man to figure things out. Um, but once the training wheels come off, and he, you know, he moved on and transitioned out, which was his plan. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely days where I was like, wait a minute. I don't know how to fix a skitter. Uh, I don't know all of, the, I don't have personal relationships with every mechanic shop throughout small towns in mm-hmm. South Carolina. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of hiring happens via word of mouth. Uh, because, again, I, I think, you know, a lot of times, even with what you guys do, right, there's, you can get on social media and source people from all sorts of places. Well, I don't really care if, our account had a hundred thousand followers if they don't live in Fairfield County, South Carolina or yeah. Orangeburg, South Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, these aren't places like a lot of people, some people, but not a lot of people are relocating to. So you're generally working with folks that live there. And so it took me a really long time to get, build up enough trust and knowledge and partners to get rid of that feeling of, Oh my God, I'm in way over my head.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it... It's just
1: crazy. It really is crazy. I've never seen again, I've never seen anything like the labor market you operate in because it is so local and most of these guys have been there their entire lives and their family was there their entire lives and they have no formal education and it's it's such a fascinating world. And then a lot of the other companies you're competing with, like you said, like there's no insurance, there's no health insurance, there's no retirement, there's nothing. It's just an hourly wage that's pretty low compared to the national average, and that's it.
2: People people are paying, you know, forget, I mean, there's obviously people 1099 and all their folks who shouldn't necessarily be doing that legally. But then there's just another dynamic, which is people pay a hundred different ways. So people will pay, there's people that pay piecework by the ton, there's people that pay by the hour, people that pay by the day, the week, salary. And so uh, I honestly think one of the, they, there's still a feature of this industry that they call the circle of labor. People are just going from one company to the next company, the next company, and eventually they come back to your company. And uh, a lot of that is because everybody's, you know, with all these different incentive systems, you just never know on which day where your biggest paycheck is going to come from. And there's never been a company that's tried to come in and build trust with people to say, listen, i Going to be straight with you. I'm trying to give you uh, the best comp, but doesn't mean that it's going to be the best comp you can get anywhere. Every day of the week, every week of the year, it means stick with me, and we're going to watch out for you and make sure that you can grow with the company and you know grow in income as you perform. And it just even today, it's still incredibly hard to sell that that vision to, to folks, but we're getting better at it.
1: How do you sell it? And, and, like how 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 do you get? How do you gain the trust of people as an outsider?
2: I think first things first, that something I believe really strongly in is you don't start out by telling people what they should be doing. You start out by listening to people's, what they, what they think they want to do and understanding why it's impossible to change someone's mind without just getting lucky. If you don't know why they're making the decision they're making in the first place. And like we talked about the culture, a lot of the times I didn't even understand why people would make the decisions they made for a long time yeah. because I didn't understand the culture. And I told a lot of my friends in consulting, I said, one of the things that's hardest about doing this is you have, you don't even realize the biases that you hold and the, the shortcuts you take in life by making assumptions on things mm. until you go somewhere and all your assumptions are wrong <laughs> and you realize that's an assumption that's actually not true everywhere. It's not true here. And then why is it true? And what do they believe instead? Um, and then once you break that down, then you can start to have a conversation about different things. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to save the company money here. I'm not trying to offer you less than I'm able to offer you to work here. Uh, this is not me versus you. It's, you know, how do we find a good place to work together? But like even getting into those conversations Took a very long time because you have to first understand what are people looking for. What other options do they truly have? What are they looking for? What, are they, what do they value? Right. And I've gone through definitely times where I think uh, we offer healthcare, we offer 401k, and I've thought to myself at times, why? You know, like people don't value it. Why would I offer that? I'm, I'm wasting my money. Should I just put it straight in their paycheck? And I always come back to no. It's just something I need to educate folks on and try to get them to understand it.
1: What, going into the assumptions, what were some of the wrong assumptions that you'd made before?
2: Um, you know, I think I have a lot of assumptions about people's understanding of, of things. I mean, so, so, you know, like quite frankly, coming from consulting world where everybody is incredibly analytical, everybody sort of understood when you looked at a pay sub that some of your money went to this tax and that tax and some of your money went to, you know your your benefits and and other things that you took from the company, and then that your net pay resulted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think I took for granted that a lot of the folks I had been exposed to, either in corporations or other folks, were, were not hourly workers; they were salary workers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think for a long time I had to get my arms around what are these? What are, what is an hourly worker who doesn't get guaranteed the same number of hours every work value, right? Do they value more the peaks of when things are going really well? Do they value staying away from the lows that they never hit too too far below, or do, you know, or do they value just stability? Right, they give up a little bit to just have a steady number and and that kind of thing was since we started talking about comp on this that that was definitely one of those things that took me a very long time to to get my arms around and realize that I, I've come to believe reducing volatility in people's paychecks while it isn't perfect management theory for how to incent someone. It is very human <laughs> people. I think most people that I work with value highly some sense of stability yeah. uh, at, at, a, at a reasonable level over uh, other things. And and of course that just comes down to having somebody that you can really trust to just get the job done, even though their pay doesn't fluctuate on that happening.
1: <laughs> no, and I agree And there was a, I'm in this group and Ed Mallet talks in it quite a bit that was one of the things he talked about this past week was people want safety, security, stability, and they also want uncertainty, which is it's their opposites, but they really do want some kind of stability and safety there before they want, you know, they want, they want variety with what they do day to day. They want things changing. They want to be stimulated, but ultimately they want to know their paychecks also going to be there. And this is what, I feel like the construction industry, it's similar there with, uh, weather. And I know this is a big thing for you guys too, as, as far as well, it rained today. Sorry guys, we're not working. And, And, and they just accept that as that's the norm. But the next generation is starting to not really accept that because they can, they have a million other options as far as a steady paycheck goes. So why do I need to work for you? And, leave it to chance, leave it to mother nature when I get paid or not, when I can just go over here and I know I'm going to get X amount hours a week. And until you right. iron that out and make it so it makes sense and it is a lot less volatile, you're going to have a labor problem. But these companies just don't seem to understand that concept.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I, you just have to restructure it. It's, it's, and it's usually, I'm guessing those companies' problem isn't that they're not paying enough. It's just that you're not paying in the right way. Because yes you need to do it in such a way that it, it makes everybody's life and managing their income easier. And I, I, I've come to believe that, you know, over years of business centric thinking from ownership, you know, it's obviously every business wants to reduce their risk. And one way to reduce your risk is make your costs flow as close to your income as it can. But I think that's a hundred percent true for everything except for people because people's lives go on whether or not the business makes income or not. And to a certain extent, Extent, that's why I'm the owner and they're the employee, is because it's our job to take on some of that risk. And I think table stakes risk to take on as a business owner is we're going to make make sure you're taken care of in sort of good times and bad. Doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, deviations from that at times in extreme circumstances, but it doesn't mean just because, you know, you got a really bad wet winter that you should make 20% less than yeah. you did the previous
1: year. Well, and, and um, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's a good point. It's the owner is the one that's supposed to take the risk. And so if it's a shitty year, that's your problem as the owner. I mean, that's what you signed up for. You don't really I know there's there's some value to hey, like we're we really need everyone to hunker down a little bit here so we can get through this together. But also, it's not everyone's problem at the same time. It's it's you as the owner. It's your problem to figure out, not theirs. And it, yeah, it's it's just I and I've thought a lot about this too. <laughs> you can have the best damn culture the best benefits, the best workplace ever, the most
0: fulfilling work possible. But if you don't give someone their paycheck <laughs> at the end of the week, they're still gone. <laughs> there's, they, there's, it's just none
1: of that matters if you can't pay people consistently. And I, I've, I've thought actually at length about that over the past month. It's like, you know, this whole company thing, it's great. And I take care of their, these people and this and that. But if me as an owner if I don't guarantee money coming in and I can't guarantee these people's paychecks, nothing else matters. That is, that is everything that matters before anything else matters. At the end of the day, it really does come down to money and paying people.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the table stake, right? I mean, if they're not, most people don't, it's not a charitable enterprise for them. And, and yes, yeah, so you got it. And there's nothing, no scarier moment for a business owner than it. Uh, <laughs> or yeah. it doesn't go out or whatever. I mean, that's, that's what people are coming, coming to work for. And obviously we, you have to, you know, have more than that. That's not enough to be satisfied, but I, you know, I do, you
1: can't be satisfied without it. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying there. Can we go into like big picture logging? What, how does the logging industry work? Can you explain how you guys get paid and how the mills work and just a real basic overview as far as the industry and how it functions?
2: Yeah. And it's, more complicated than I think sometimes it should be, but it also, everybody has a role. Um, So, uh, you know, I got into this, I thought it was really simple. I was like, oh, this is logging. There's three pieces of equipment. You load the truck, you drag the wood out of the forest and you cut the wood down. And and, uh, this is so easy. But in reality, there's a lot of players. So, uh, you know, for the most part, checks are cut by these mills and mills are anyone from international paper, producing paper products, to lumber mills like Canfor and West Fraser that produce 2 by wars and home building products, to Georgia Pacific, which produces a wide variety of wood products. So those folks are our end markets, and we're shipping wood into them in return for the wood they're paying us. In the south, a vast majority of the business is in something called a stumpage model, which means that payment goes to a wood dealer. One third of the activities we do at Bellwether is wood dealership, which is purchasing wood from landowners and selling it to mills. So uh, we basically contract to get a price for the wood from the mill. We then figure out about what it's going to cost to log and haul that wood. It leaves us with some uh, money left uh, over, and then we decide what we can offer uh, uh, reasonably to give to the landowner to give them a good return on their investment and pick us over competitors so what happens with that money then when we go log is the, the, the property is we get paid by the mill. Well, the first thing we do is we write a check for whatever the mill we deliver to the mill, some percentage of that as agreed upon in a contract to a landowner and that landowner takes that money. And then we also, because we do all things, we apportion part of it to our login operation. And then we apportion part of it to our trucking operation. And so that, that's sort of like the basic structure and flow of like how things work. It's just, uh, I, I've always found it to be really interesting because what other contracting work do you not, the, the core tenant of what you're bidding on is the, the work that's being completed, right? So I would normally expect it, you would bid on what does it cost to log and haul this property? Yeah. Let's do an estimate. And then the, the landowner is the one that owns the wood. So why wouldn't the mill just pay the landowner and then the landowner could pay me for doing the work, right? <laughs> Which is how a lot, a lot of things would work. There is some of that with big industrial companies and they call that a direct sale, but most mills work with dealers and most landowners are not large enough to manage that process and those relationships. Uh, And you can, if you think about it, it makes sense because you know, a tree just say, grows over the process of 25, 30 years, a landowner doesn't need to be maintaining a relationship directly with a mill for 25 years so that they're ready to sell at that time. So You know, those of us that are in the dealership spot do that, but in return, a lot of people think about what the market is as what stumpage prices are. And stumpage is the word that refers to what the landowner actually gets their share of the total price after logging, hauling, and everything. And so people oftentimes just, they think that there's a market for stumpage that is independent of what logging and hauling costs are.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: mm. And so that's uh, that's sometimes the issue with, I think, the industry is uh, there's not enough. I, I sometimes say that the industry could use more logging estimators and fewer timber buyers because there are a lot of people that are great at understanding the supposed value of timber, um, but 50% of the mill's price typically goes to logging and hauling activities. And I say, how could you possibly empirically know what the timber is worth if you don't understand how to estimate that 50%?
1: Yeah. And there's, there's, there's some risk on your, there's actually a, there quite a bit of risk on the logging company itself, right?
2: Yeah. on the. I mean, there's risk for, for everybody, right? I mean, yeah. anybody that listens to this and owns heavy equipment knows there's risk, but the, the dealer does take on risk sometimes for volume. There's two kinds of contracts we work with. We've per unit deals that have uh, less risk because we basically pay by the product we ship. Mm-hmm. So, Kind of, it's more proportionate, but there are also contracts we sign that are lump sum deals where we uh, send a forester out to the woods and they cruise the timber, which is kind of going out, taking an inventory of what they think is out there, which is oftentimes really difficult on large tracks. Uh, involves sampling and algorithms, and then they we come up with a price and agree to pay them up front for it, and then you take on the entirety of the risk if you know there's less than that out there. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the, that, definitely
1: that's, that's a,
2: well, yeah, you, you go
1: out into that. the, you go to the woods and you just basically have to guess, okay, how much wood is here and then you better, you better hope like all of it's solid, like not rotted out or there's, there's all <laughs> kinds of weird stuff that can happen there that is so far from what you guessed at the beginning of the process.
2: Yeah. And that's why, I mean, we really shy away from lump sum projects because you know, a lot of people traditionally like to sell them that way, especially smaller tracts of timber. A landowner can understand a lot better if you say, "I can write you a fifty thousand dollars check for this timberland," than if you say, "I can give you eight dollars a ton yeah. for all your pulpwood and fifteen for your chip site." So that oftentimes those sales happen that way. But the truth of it is, in our business, we're the only times we're going to purchase the lump sum track is when it's something that would help us get through a winter time period. And it's a pretty uniform stand. Like as we say, it's the trees are planted like corn. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to get a sense for volumes out there and, and reduce your risk. Uh, otherwise we're really shy away from that.
1: And it's not, and then that's, that's the other thing I've noticed about these tracks when I've gone out is not all like a lot of times it is planted and, and we'll get into that in a second, but the, the wood varies too. So a lot of times on the deck, they'll be sorting out wood for all different sorts of different mills and different products, right? It's not like just one, like, yep, this is all paper. It there's, there's a lot going on at some of these tracks that's so variable and, and down to a lot of it's just down to the, the loader operator and them looking at the tree and being able to identify, yep, that's a pulp log or, or whatever it may be.
2: We shipped to 45 different wood consuming locations last year. It's nuts. Um, We've shipped to more this year. Everyone has their own specs, their own weight policies, their own culling standards to take money off for defects of some type. And, you know, the specs go from you got to know the butt size on one side of the tree to the top size on the other to a minimum or a maximum length. Some are cut to length, some are tree length you know, there's, there's a, a lot to keep track of. And these guys that are out in the woods, especially like you said, the loader operator, but oftentimes all three guys know this stuff. They know it, they know it all. And, you know, you can, you said earlier about, you know, some of the guys don't have formal education. Well, shit, they learn this stuff every day, all the time. Cause it changes all the time. Yeah. And they're having conversations and having to say, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. I'm um, sorting out what differently. I'm going to a new market and in our business markets, you know, they have their own mechanical issues, sometimes they have demand issues. A lot of things change and so things can change on a whim for the guys in the woods too where they have to say, all right, I have this, these trees that I was going to cut in a certain way um, and now I'm gonna cut them in a different way to keep wood flowing, keep us working and go to different markets. Mm. And it's it's really, really complicated and the guys that do it well are brilliant. And, uh, and, and I, I really, I mean, you know, it's a very efficient industry and these guys can look at a tree standing in the air and they can tell you there's two logs and a stick of pulpwood at the top. And then as soon as that market shuts down for those logs, they can tell you, all right, maybe I can make this into a pole and a bullet You know, we, we do things different ways because we have the ability to, because we're purchasing the wood, selling the wood, logging the wood and hauling the wood. than yeah. all of our competition would do. And we really uh, make a deal with the landowner and then we do what we have to do to keep the wood flowing. But these guys out in the woods, they're incredibly good at those, with second decisions to figure that
1: out. Yeah, and so you could be halfway through a tract and then, you know, the mill just says, nah, we're, we're chock full. We don't really need any more right now. And then you just have to come up with a fly like, all right, well, if that's not an option anymore now, we have to keep, get the wood to this mill and there's, you know, their specs are a little bit different. So we're going to have to change. And then, you know, within a 24-hour period, you're creating a different product on the same tract.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and part of what we've worked really hard over the last four years is making, making sure we have options. You'll always be able to solve problems, but you'll drive around the state at times and see, I always hear guys call these tracks ham hocked, which is uh, you go by and you're like, oh, they've logged that, but they left all the, there's a bunch of trees standing out there. And what happened to them was uh, they were logging, but one of the markets shut down. So they didn't cut down the trees that went to that market. And now they're going to have to cover all that ground twice someday and take those ones out. And, and that's, that's, that's called, you know, people will, Kind of like, in a funny way, refer to it as being handlocked because they made a mess of it, you know, and the markets basically forced their hand on it. But that's a lot, you know, that's a logger or a dealer that didn't have options. Yeah. So when a market shut down, they were, they had their hands tied, uh, which is a situation we really, really work hard to stay out of.
0: It is
1: and I know it's getting a little bit better, but it really is like everyone's trying to get their share of the pie, I feel like. And the logging company, uh, the loggers at the end of the day kind of get the short end of the stick no no matter what. It's like the the mills want to pay X amount for for the, 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 the wood. You have the buyers that, that want their share, the landowners that want their share. And then you guys, like everyone, it feels like it's kind of counterproductive. Everyone trying to work against each other rather than, hey, what if we just sat down and tried to make this work for everybody? Wouldn't it be a lot more effective trying to work together rather than just trying to be at everyone's throats all the time?
2: I mean it's at the end of the day wood is a commodity product yeah. and we sell it to a mill and specifically to a mill's procurement department and procurement department's job is to pay as little as possible yeah. for the product on the other end we have to buy the wood from a landowner who in the majority of cases especially smaller private landowners their sole goal is return on investment And so they're trying to maximize the amount of money they get paid. So uh, I always say, you know, it's impossible for us to tell our two customers, the landowner and the bill that we have absolutely their best interest at heart without lying to someone. Uh, Because the reality is we're pokering a deal to try to make a fair outcome that works for everyone and have a return on investment for ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just a hard thing to do. Um, And that's, you know, to a lot of what I've been working with your team on is, you know, one of our more successful relationships is just there are other folks that aren't necessarily at the landowner side, always trying to maximize their return on investment. They are, but they also have quarterly and annual income goals, which is more investment funds. And, you know, you you would say that about the bigger landowners in other parts of the country as well. But when when they have a little bit more of an incentive that they need to generate income on a schedule to meet some investment goals or other things, that is more aligned with what our incentives are as well, which is to try to move wood at a right pace. And so uh, we've been kind of invested heavily in those relationships so that we have like a, a base load of work that allows us to take a little bit more risk and be more competitive with private folks who do need to maximize the value of every tree.
1: It makes sense. And wood and is a commodity, but the service you're providing, it doesn't necessarily have to be a commodity at the same time because there's a right way to log and a wrong way log as well and you know working with you guys you can definitely maximize the value of certain products over specific time rather than the landowner just making all the decisions since they're not the ones actually doing it you guys know what's going on what the market the market's doing and and there's a lot of value that you can provide there if you work with one another rather than always trying to get the lowest cost commodity product
2: yeah and that just goes back to I think this has happened in a lot of businesses, but people don't always value the intricacies of the work being done. They want to see the lowest dollar figure or the highest dollar figure in a spreadsheet. Yeah, And that, you know, spreadsheet, I, th- I think sometimes people don't spend enough time doing the after action review and saying, how did it turn out for me? <laughs> like how yeah. did that work out? Yeah. Uh, because I think oftentimes people will go back and look at it and say, uh, you know, I'm going to assign this bid to Bellwether's competitor because they're, two percent lower on this spreadsheet without looking back and saying, oh, the last five times we've worked with Bellwether, we've come out five percent better than what the spreadsheet said we would come out. Yep. And, and that, you know, that, that time, that does happen uh, all the time because of the way we do our business. So, yeah, I, I think there's just sometimes too much emphasis on trying to make it justifiable instead of doing what you know to be right.
1: Can we... Let's go into the environmental aspect of, of logging because you guys, you make money based on wood. And so uh, the interesting thing about logging companies is the logging industry is one of the more environmentally conscious industries out there. And people don't understand mm-hmm. that. They think you guys are just senselessly murdering trees. But if you don't replace the trees, if you don't take care of the woods, then you have no money to make. So there's a, you're, you're financially mm-hmm. incentivized to take care of the woods that you are mm-hmm. you are logging can you explain how the industry takes care of making sure this this the timbers there for many generations
2: yeah i mean i would just start out with the simple fact that probably near 99% of all the wood we harvest in a year uh, all those acreages that we harvest will be replanted with yeah. timberland it's it is a cycle and unlike corn on an annual cycle it's a you know, typically a 25, 30 or longer uh, year cycle. But just like the Midwest and areas is very fertile land for growing certain crops and they grow them there because the economically best place to grow it. The Southeast is one of the most conducive places in the whole world to grow timber. And so these, these properties are managed over a long time. But it's important to remember, I mean, these harvests, there might be a thinning done in the 15 to 20 year range, which is taking out some of the weaker, smaller trees For pulpwood, taking them to a pulp mill, but ultimately leaving more room for growth and prosperity for the bigger, better trees, uh, which turn into higher value products like logs and and, uh, utility poles and things. So there's that harvest at 15 to 20 years. And then there's usually, for most folks, a clear-cut harvest at 25 to 30, where you take everything out. After that clear-cut harvest, you typically wait a couple of years to let the soil kind of regenerate, stumps decompose. Uh, Oftentimes a lot of forestry steps are taken there, it's basically let things regenerate and then you replant and start the cycle again. Why do people replant? They replant because it's economically viable to do that, use the land that way. And in yeah. instances, which we don't participate in a lot of logging, like but you do see when uh, you see areas of the state, folks buy it out for a solar farm and they can make more money on the solar farm than they can on the tree. Well, next time they cut that wood down, it turns into a solar farm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The, that is, you know, those trees will not return there for some time. So I, you know, there's been a lot of studies that show that the prosperity of the marketplaces that are in the Southeast have led to more forested acres. And the fact of the matter is there's more forested acres in the Southeast today than there was a hundred years ago, uh, than there was 20 years ago. And so it's continuing to kind of drive people to want trees and, and then the last point I think is what you said, which is when you walk out here and you see these guys that you think are tree killers, you realize like no one loves the outdoors and the forest more than these guys do. They live in it, they live around it, and they truly love it. And they're not there to kill it. They understand the cycle and how it works. And they take great care of the land when they're out there.
1: Yeah, they're, they're the one, yeah. And that's a good point. They're the ones that, that live in it, work in it, depend on it to feed their families. They're obviously going to treasure it. And then you have these people living in you know the city, telling them that they're doing something wrong. It's like, well, hold on here, bucko. Like you, you don't even, you don't even see a tree on a daily basis. So why are you telling me how to do, you know, how to protect the woods that I've been doing, you know, protecting for 50 years and the, the U S like people don't understand that the U S has been net positive for wood growth for over four decades now, because we we used to do it in a really irresponsible manner. And then we learned, okay, if we keep going down this route, we're not going to have trees anymore. So we need to be a little bit smarter about this. And now it's gone in a very positive direction. The biggest,
2: I just sat in a presentation the other day um, by some folks there are studying the environmental and CO2 aspects of forests. And that's what they do uh, their whole job. And the fact of the matter is CO2 storage in the Southeast is incredibly, it's incredibly strong part of the total carbon sequestration that the U S has. Uh. And the biggest, the biggest, thing that has hurt uh forestry's impact on carbon is forest fires which is also the biggest loss of acreage that's been had in any recent decades is uh these forest fires obviously release an incredible amount of carbon and also destroy a lot of acreage that will never be replanted or at least purposefully replanted it may generate naturally over a very long time but so so that's you know it's kind of very interesting that managed forestry in the southeast is there's a lot of factors that are different weather and, and geography and things, but the managed forestry in the Southeast is very purposeful to you know, prevent forest fires, prevent destructive events, and also create an economically viable system to plant wood cycle after cycle.
1: Well, and, and peop- that, that's another thing people don't understand. Forest fires are a lot of times the result of mismanaged forest land. <laughs> yep. So if you yep. manage the forest land, which is thinning, which is clear cutting a lot of times, which is logging it in in a sustainable manner, you're not going to have fires. It's, it's, that's a fact. I mean, it's, they're impossible to totally prevent, but a lot of the forest fires nowadays are entirely preventable. Just, it's just because there's so much undergrowth that's just sitting there as fuel waiting to be burned. And so when it does catch on fire, it goes because it's never been touched for 50 years.
2: Yeah, and and uh, people here are really proud of the fact, you know, from forest breaks to controlled burns to, you know, different types of chemical treatments that sometimes get applied. But I mean, at the end of the day, these forests are managed to be, you know, places that they can spend that 30 year cycle enjoying recreationally prior to them being a good return on investment. And so, you know, there's a, definitely a piece of this private investment that leads to higher touch care that helps prevent some of these major natural events that are destructive and bad to the environment.
1: Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so you guys are a lot more environmentally conscious than people think you are. And no one could live without timber, right? I mean, if you turn the lights on power poles, if you live in a house, two by fours, if you go to the bathroom, toilet paper, if you've ever signed a piece of paper, paper products, (laughs) like you guys touch every aspect of life.
2: And you're going to see more new products. I, I truly believe wood is going to be a big time commodity in the next hundred years, because you know, as people get away from non-renewable resources, there's nothing that, uh, what is a renewable resource and, uh, and it renews quickly, you know, every 30 years you can grow these trees in the Southeast to the log size. And it takes less time than that to grow to something that would get turned into a pulp product. And, you know, you've seen, I think the big news story not long ago was Johnny Walker, uh, Gotch is uh, moving to, toward a paper-based bottle product uh, pretty mm. soon. And you know, there's a lot of these companies that are trying to get away from plastics and glass and other things that are harder to break down or recycle and get into paper. And yeah. and then you've got on the building product side, people should read about cross-laminated timber, which is trying to replace some steel and iron products in building taller buildings, which yep. is just you know going to be a growth area as well. So, uh, And the, a and the great part of those things is when you – don't completely pulverize the tree in the pulping process with a product cross-seminated timber, it, contain, it, you know, it continues to contain that carbon largely forever. So it's almost just a permanent storage of it. And so there's like a lot of good, uh, I think, things about wood that will make it a more popular product, not less over the next hundred years.
1: Love it. Well, you guys are in a pretty good spot. I'm getting there anyway, making progress.
2: Yeah, I mean, all you can do is just make a little bit of progress every day yeah. and try to get a little bit better.
1: Don't don't I know that it gets frustrating. <laughs> so I, I get a little impatient sometimes, but I just gotta keep reminding myself, like, "Hey, man, just uh, just breathe, just just make a little bit of progress. You'll it'll add up over time, I guess."
2: Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a huge believer in just you just do little, little little things right every day, and eventually you'll find yourself at a really good spot and life's long enough to wait.
1: That's what people keep telling me. So I guess I'll, uh, I have no choice but to believe in it. Only time will tell. But anyway, I, uh, I appreciate you giving us an hour on your uh, Labor Day Monday. I'll let you get back to your life. I don't want to take up too much of your time today.
2: It's always fun talking to you and uh, working with your team and uh, people should check us out at, uh, especially if you're in South Carolina at, bellweatherfp.com maybe wait a few months until Aaron and his team are done with their work but
1: (laughs) it'll look a little bit prettier but and and you guys are on social media too
2: yeah thanks to your guidance to me three years ago we are on social media on Instagram at bellweather underscore fp and on Facebook it's Products. two major places find me Matt Moldenhauer on LinkedIn but that's more me
1: Um, yeah and you're one of the you're one of the few logging companies with any kind of social media presence not that it really contributes to hiring and everything like that. But if nothing else, you're educating people about what the logging industry actually even looks like. And I think it's like, I can't, I've made a lot of posts about it lately. I can't overstate how unique and special South Carolina logging is. And, and just the people I, I could, I could spend weeks just hanging out with all those people out there. There's something about it. I can't put my finger on it and I can't really put it into words, but it's just a special group of individuals out there.
2: They, uh, it's incredibly rewarding work for me to be around the guys all the time because they work very hard. They're up so early every morning to get out into the woods by themselves. No one who's accountable for them except for themselves. And, yeah. and, and they just, yeah, it's just a, a group of early risers, long commuters that don't have any slack in the system, that are jacks of all trades and love the outdoors. And that makes it really fun to watch guys that are truly kind of maximizing what you can do with what we give them out there.
1: Love it. All right, Matt, I appreciate it. And I don't know when I'll be seeing you next, but hopefully it's not too long.
2: We'll catch up soon. I'm sure. Have a great rest of the Labor Day.
1: Thanks man. And everybody that was Matt Moldenhauer with Bellwether force products. Appreciate everyone listening. You found it interesting? Please continue to share it. It's been awesome to see how many people are sharing the podcast. It's really starting to actually somewhat take off. We're well past a hundred thousand downloads now, and it's been pretty wild to hear about all the, the cool things people are taking away from it. Uh, I'm really excited about. it. We're going to keep it going full bore. If if but you know we're not getting paid for it. I'm not. I'm, I'm spending a lot of money on it and spending a lot of time on it. So if nothing else, please please share it with at least one person that you think might benefit from it. Because I think um, you know the lessons. Most of it's not from me. Most of it's from real smart people, and they have a lot of smart things to say. And with that, I will see you guys on the next one. Thanks.